All right, good morning. Good to see you all today. That is nice to get a little bit of a later start. Somebody in my church asked me not too long ago if they could, uh, we, have, we have chairs like y'all have, but uh, said, you know, if we ever get pews in here, uh, you know, we need to get those pews with the sleep number, the sleep number pews. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes when the kids are making noise, I want to, you know, during the sermon, I want to say, you know, uh, parents, don't you know, you got to keep your kids quiet. There are people trying to sleep in here. Well, um, this morning I want to start with a, a, I guess you could say a parable of my own, uh, a story from my own experience, and uh, this goes back to my uh, college days when I was an undergrad at uh, Auburn University. Uh, I used to go to this little uh, donut shop uh, to study, Uh, but you know how it is whenever college students get together to study, uh, usually very little studying uh, gets done. And uh, that's, I think, how it was in these cases. Anyway, I went to this little donut shop, and I would go there to study. But there was, a, there was a guy that hung out there a good bit, too, and I got to know him, just would start talking with him. And it was a young black man, and uh, we had uh, interesting conversations, getting to know each other. And as we were talking, it came out that he was a Jehovah's Witness, uh, which, of course, we would view as, uh, as a uh, cult is usually the term that we uh, use because um, while they may seem to have some things in common with the Christian faith, they deny fundamental tenets. And the most obvious one in the case of the Jehovah's Witnesses is the uh, deity of Christ, uh, which they deny. Um, well, I was a very eager young apologist for the Christian faith, and I saw this guy as a prime target. I thought, wouldn't this be great to have conversations and ultimately uh, convince this guy and, and lead him to conversion? And I felt like I knew my Bible and I knew how to argue, and so I went at it. And uh, we would go back and forth. He, he knew his stuff, and he liked to argue, too. And I'd make arguments for the deity of Jesus, and he'd offer his counterarguments, and we'd uh, discuss Bible translations and, uh, and the way of salvation from sin and all those good topics that you get into when you're having one of these kind of apologetic encounters, especially with somebody from a cult. And I have no doubt, I had no doubt then, I have no doubt now, that my arguments were much better. I would even you know, go home from our conversations. If there was a question I couldn't answer, I'd go home and I'd study and I'd find an answer. Next time I showed up at the donut shop and he was there, uh, I'd jump right in with my answers to his objections and his questions. But oddly, after a few months of this back and forth, it did not seem I was making any progress. And it was uh, beginning to frustrate me because I thought, you know, I've got the better arguments. Why aren't you, uh, why aren't you listening? Why aren't you converting? And I, I felt like our conversations were starting to go in circles and the conversation was getting stale. And so um, finally one day, just kind of out of the blue without giving it a lot of thought, I asked him, so how'd you become a Jehovah's Witness anyway? And so he proceeded to tell me the story. Uh, And it turns out he had been raised in a Baptist church, and he had been brought to the faith and baptized at a relatively early age. But in high school, he had gotten mixed in with the wrong crowd. Uh, He ended up stealing a car, and he did some jail time. Uh, But while he was in jail, he had plenty of time to think about his mistakes, plenty of time to think about the choices he had made. Uh, And he had a lot of remorse, a lot of regret. He would say he repented. And so when he got out of jail, he went back to his Baptist church, eager to get back into the practice of his faith with the community there. Uh, But all his old friends and even family members at church shunned him. Uh, He was not welcomed back. 
they viewed him as a thug and a criminal and probably didn't want him influencing their kids and doing who knows what else. He was simply not welcomed back. And he told me uh, not too long after this, he had uh, met some Jehovah's Witness missionaries. And they had evangelized him in their own way, and they had embraced him and befriended him and welcomed him into their community. And so he joined the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the rest, as they say, is history. And suddenly I realized what a fool I had been having all these conversations with him without ever really giving him a chance to tell his story, uh, without ever really uh, coming to an understanding of his own background. And suddenly I realized that all his objections to the Christian faith were really not intellectual so much as they were experiential. And his attraction to his new faith had little to do with arguments, even though he knew all the arguments. It had much more to do with relationships. He went to the place where he found a welcome. He went to the place where he could have a sense of belonging. He had wanted to reintegrate into his Baptist community, but they wouldn't take him back after what he had done. And so he went to the place where he was welcomed with open arms. The issue was not so much what he believed, but where he belonged. It wasn't so much the content of the doctrine as it was where he found community. And in that particular case, a cult did much better than the church. The church gave this young man the older brother treatment. And that's, that, that, that experience, uh, that relationship with this man, led me to ask a question that I have been asking myself and my churches ever since. How can we, as Christians, be more faithful in giving a gospel welcome to prodigals? How can we join with Jesus in rolling out the red carpet for sinners? Uh, with that in mind, let's turn back to Luke 15. And I want to read the first uh, couple of verses, and then I'm just going to skip down and read the parable of the prodigal son, because that really will be our focus. So Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, and now we'll jump down to verse 11. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this, son was, for this my son was dead and is alive again and was lost 
and is now found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Luke 15 has a number of special features that uh, we need to take notice of if we really want to understand this chapter. I want to call your attention to some of them here this morning, especially the different contexts within which we can look at the story and the uh, different relationships that we see uh, within the story. Um, First, there are many ways to approach this story. One that a lot of commentators, especially these days, will focus on is what you could call the redemptive historical reading of this story. If you like to read N.T. Wright, for example, this is really what he will do with it. He does a brilliant job of reading the parable in this kind of way. Um, Looking at the parable in what you could call its canonical context, the, the context of the whole canon, the whole of the scriptures. And in this way, the parable comes to be understood as a retelling of Israel's story, a, a re-narration of Israel's history. And so really in this story, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees' understanding of Israel's history and their place in it. Indeed, the chapter opens with the Pharisees complaining because Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners. They say this man eats, and receive, eats with and receives sinners. And the stories Jesus tells here uh, explain why. Uh, The Pharisees certainly saw themselves as the true Israel, the people who would be the fullest recipients of the promises the prophets had made when they came to fulfillment. But Jesus is standing that expectation on its head. Uh, The prophets had said that when the kingdom finally arrives, God will spread a lavish banquet for his people. You see this described in places like Isaiah 25. But by telling a story that ends with a son who has returned from exile for a feast, Jesus is, in effect, indicating that those who attend his messianic meals, those who come and eat and drink with him, the tax collectors and the sinners, they are truly the renewed Israel. They are the the ones who experience all the blessings of the kingdom, the shalom, the peace that the prophets had promised. They're the ones who will be given the new covenant. Jesus is presenting the Pharisees, really, with a challenge, uh, with a new way of being Israel. And if they do not join in, they will remain in exile and under the curse. Jesus, in these meals with sinners, is celebrating the return of prodigals, that is, of exiles from a far country. Uh, Remember, Israel had been exiled away into the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires, and there was a promise of return, and there was some kind of initial fulfillment of that promise when the people did come back to the land, but that was not the full fulfillment of the promise of a return from exile. It was not the promise of a new exodus uh, coming to pass. That's happening now in the ministry of Jesus. And so these meals Jesus is sharing with sinners are really new Passover meals celebrating a new exodus. 
Really, it's the younger brother's exile to a far country that is uh, the key clue to what this story is all about. You can summarize Israel's whole history as a story of exile and return or of death and resurrection. You see this in passages like Hosea 6 or Ezekiel 36 and 37. And so for the prodigal to come home after being in a far country, this means the exiles are returning, the new exodus is happening. And so this parable can be understood as a synopsis, a, 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 a summarizing of Israel's whole history. And the tax collectors and prostitutes who are eating with Jesus constitute his new Israel. They are the ones who are enjoying the fulfillment of the prophetic promise. They are the Jews who are returning from exile to become God's new covenant people. So that's one way of reading the story. That's one feature of the story. It's canonical context. But there's another way of looking uh, at this story, and that is to see it within its, what I'll call uh, evangelical context. It's context within the gospel of Luke, uh, the evangel of Luke. Luke here tells a story, you know, Luke's gospel as a whole is a story about the Pharisees opposing Jesus and his new Israel. That's what you see as Luke's gospel unfolds. The plot in this gospel hinges on this ever-escalating conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. That's really what the gospel is about, and how will this conflict be resolved? Well, within Luke's gospel, which is about this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, within the, within the story of Luke's gospel... Jesus tells a story that explains why the Pharisees oppose him and oppose his new Israel. Note this. This is so important to see this in Luke 15. The chapter begins with the Pharisees grumbling. Why? Because of Jesus' choice of dining companions. They don't like the fact that Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. That's how the chapter begins. The chapter ends with the older brother grumbling because his father is eating and drinking with a sinner. Do you see that match? The way the chapter begins with the Pharisees grumbling about who Jesus is eating with and how it ends with the older brother grumbling about who his father is eating with. In other words, you know, there, there's this match. The parable mirrors the book as a whole. The parable shows us what the, what the gospel of Luke is all about. It's really a, a summarizing of the gospel of Luke, what's happening within the story of Luke's gospel. The story of the parable of the prodigal son summarizes it for us. It's kind of like this parable is a Russian doll inside of a Russian doll. And you know how those Russian dolls look just alike. They're just different sizes. Well, the parable of the prodigal son is just the same story Luke's whole gospel is telling, just in smaller size. Or you could put it this way, in this parable, Jesus is telling a story about the story Luke is telling. Jesus is telling a story that explains the story Luke is telling. The parable in Luke 15 is about the gospel of Luke. It's about what's happening in the gospel of Luke, and it's explaining and summarizing the gospel of Luke. And so all the same characters are there in Luke's gospel as in the parable. In Luke's gospel, you've got a father figure in Jesus. Uh, you've got prodigals who are the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners who are coming to him. And you've got older brother figures, of course, the Pharisees. Okay, you see that? Again, how does Luke 15 begin? With Pharisees grumbling because Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners. How does Luke 15 end? With a story in which a son is complaining that his father is eating and drinking with a sinner. So you see that match. You see how they mirror 
one another. The parable is a story within the story of Luke's gospel. And the parable is a story about the story of Luke's gospel as a whole. It's a story inside a story. And the story on the inside, the parable, really explains the story on the outside, the gospel of Luke as a whole. The story on the inside explains the story on the outside. The smaller story, you could say, explains the larger story. So that's the second feature, understanding this parable within its uh, evangelical context, within the gospel context, within the gospel of Luke. The gospel as a whole informs of the parable, and the parable interprets the gospel as a whole. That's another thing to keep in mind. Third feature of the parable We've looked at the canonical context, we've looked at the evangelical context, we need to look at the ecclesial context. What happens with this parable in the life of the church, the ecclesia? What happens when we shift to the ecclesial context? What does this story mean inside the church? How does it apply to the life of the church? Indeed, what does it mean for us today in the church? See, if the canonical and evangelical contexts show us what this story meant, the ecclesial context is about what it means. What is the contemporary relevance of this story? How does it apply to the life of the church here and now in 2017? How does it interpret church life for us? Uh, how does it explain church life for us? And to answer these kinds of questions, we, in, in, in a way you could say to make this story relevant, we've got to recognize that this parable is an unfinished story. What is the challenge this story presents to the church? It's the challenge of writing an ending to this unfinished story. Consider how abruptly it ends. The story simply ends with the father outside the party pleading with the older son to come in. It's a very abrupt ending. What would you think of a movie that ended this abruptly? This is a story in search of an ending. It lacks resolution. It's really a cliffhanger. We don't know how it goes. Uh, it's open-ended. It's incomplete. We're left hanging. Will the older brother be united, be reunited to his father? Will he be reconciled to his younger brother? Or will he remain in his self-righteous, self-imposed isolation? The story ends with the father pleading with the older son to come and join the party. And we don't know if he did or not. Which means it shifts to us as the readers of this story. It is up to us to write the ending of this story. The fact that the story lacks resolution challenges us to resolve it in the way we live our lives. It's an ongoing story. Where does it find uh, an ending? It finds an ending in the history of the church, in the life of the church. It's an unfinished story. Who's going to finish it? It's up to us. It's up to us to write the ending to this story. So how are we going to do that? You know, it's very interesting to me. Unfinished stories are actually rather common in the Bible. Uh, Mark's gospel, depending on where you think it, uh, it's supposed to end textually, uh, could be viewed as an unfinished story. Uh, one of the best examples of this, and actually it's a very relevant one, uh, is the book of Jonah. Jonah is also an unfinished story, which is interesting because Jonah is the classic older brother figure in the Old Testament. He is a man who is eminently reasonable and completely wrong, just like the older brother uh, in this story. 
Think about Jonah with me for just a minute. It's a, it's a kid's Bible story when you, you grow up knowing if you grew up in the church. It's a familiar story. Uh, Jonah was a Jewish prophet. He was told to go and preach to the arch enemy uh, of the Jews, to the Ninevites. Uh, but he does a 180 and he sails off in the opposite direction. And the problem with Jonah, the reason he fled in the opposite direction of Nineveh is not because he was shy or scared. It's simply because he despised the Ninevites. And he did not want the Ninevites to receive the blessing of the preaching of a prophet. And really, his hatred of the Ninevites made sense. There was, a, there was a kind of logic to Jonah's action. The Ninevites, after all, were the ancient Nazis. You know, we throw that term Nazi around a lot. Okay? The Ninevites really were Nazis. Okay? Uh, they were cruel, they were bloodthirsty, and they hated the Jews. And Jonah doesn't want to be, uh, he doesn't want any part of blessing these people. He does not want to be a light to the nations if it means going to Nineveh. Nineveh was uh, a wild beast, a, a great sea monster determined to devour Israel. Indeed, Nineveh was already uh, encroaching on Israel and, uh, and gesturing towards an invasion of Israel. So Jonah knows what's coming, and there's no way Jonah's going to go there and be a part of somehow blessing them with God's word and God's presence. Well, we know what happens from the story. Jonah sails off in the other direction, but God pursues him with a storm. Uh, and so Jonah is thrown overboard, and then God pursues him with a great fish that swallows him. And Jonah spends three days in the fish, and then he is spit out onto dry ground. And it's a kind of parable of, uh, of Israel's upcoming history, a kind of prophetic preview. What happens to the prophet is what, happen, what will happen to the nation. But what's interesting uh, is that when Jonah... Uh, finally does go grudgingly to Nineveh because he realizes God's not going to let him run away. He preaches a one-sentence sermon, and the Ninevites repent. And the king of Nineveh, the ancient Hitler himself, puts on sackcloth and ash and cries out to God, and he is forgiven. And so Jonah, who is the most successful of all the prophets of the Old Testament, the one prophet who really gets somewhere, who, who is really, you know, his message is really heeded, his warning is believed, and the people repent. But Jonah's not excited about this. Jonah is now even angrier because he didn't want the Ninevites forgiven. He wanted them destroyed. And he says to God at the end of the book, I knew you would do this. You know, he shakes his fist in the face of God. I knew that you would be good to them and show them grace. And so he becomes bitter. He hates it that his enemies have been saved. Jonah cannot share in God's love for enemies or in God's compassion for a prodigal people. Jonah's so angry indeed, he wishes he were dead. And so how does the book end? Well, it doesn't really end with any kind of resolution. God makes a little plant to grow up and provide shade for, uh, for Jonah, but then the plant withers and dies. And the book ends with God asking Jonah a question. It's really a plea in the form of a question. God says to Jonah, is it right for you to have pity on the plant you did not tend or cause to grow? And for me to not have pity for this great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people and many cattle. It ends with God pleading with Jonah. 
Very much like the parable of the prodigal son ends with the father pleading with the older son. Think about what the father says at the end of Luke 15. Everything I have is yours. It's all a gift. You didn't earn it and you don't deserve it. It's all a free gift. I've given it to you. Everything that is mine is yours. And so isn't it right to have pity on your brother who is dead but is now alive? Jonah ends with God saying, you didn't work for this plant. It's, it's my gift to you. I've given it to you. It's a free gift. Isn't it right for me to have pity on this pagan people, this prodigal nation uh, with the capital city of Nineveh? See, God has pity on Nineveh. God has pity on prodigals. And sometimes that can be offensive to us. After all, we want God to have all the same enemies we have. We want God to hate all the same people we hate. But God doesn't work that way. God is asking us, who do you despise? Who do you hate? Who do you most criticize? Who do you find it easiest to criticize? God is pleading with us saying, understand, your story with those people is not finished. You need to go and write a compassionate ending to that story. Whatever your relationship is with those people you most despise or you find it easiest to hate or easiest to criticize, your story with them is not over. Go and write the ending to that story in a compassionate way. Your Jonah-like older brother tendencies come out in just these kinds of relationships. Again, ask, who do you hate the most? Who do you find it easiest to criticize? Who gets on your nerves the quickest? Who do you find yourself gossiping about? That's a classic older brother sin. Who would you most like to see humiliated? Who do you have the hardest time forgiving? Who raises your blood pressure just by walking in the room? Who do you most feel threatened by? Is it the Democrats? Is it the gays? Is it public school kids? Who most threatens you? Make those people your missional priority. Find ways to go show them pity and compassion and love. The very people you most despise are the ones you must learn to do this with. That is how you defeat older brotherism. You can use the kinds of questions I just asked. Who do you most criticize? Who do you have the hardest time forgiving? You can use those kinds of questions to diagnose your relationships to see where you are the older brother. And then you've got to push yourself to go and write a compassionate ending to the story of your interactions with that person or that group of people. Now, let me come at this another way. I now want to make another approach to the story. Another way of getting at uh, what this story is about is to look at the interrelationships, really to, to triangulate the relationships in the story. That's what you have is a, is a triangle of relationships. And, and, and the relationships that are broken and, and the ones that are healed or that can be healed. Consider the triangle of relationships here between the father and each of his sons and then between the sons with each other, the, the brothers with each other. Uh, our problem is that we are too much like each of the brothers and not enough like the father. The sons represent two wrong ways of relating to the father. One is lawless, the other is a legalist. And the Father represents a third way of living, of living, a way that we could call compassionate conviction or truthful loving. 
But to understand what the father does right, we have to understand what each of the sons, each of the brothers, gets wrong. I've heard this story approached this way. The question will be asked, okay, so here's the parable of the prodigal son, and where do you see yourself in this story? And so that's one way that teachers will sometimes try to apply the passage is ask, okay, well, which brother are you? Which brother are you most like? And I think that's the wrong way to approach it. It is true, we will have certain tendencies that make us perhaps more like the younger brother or more like uh, the older brother. Um, But uh, unless you see yourself in both brothers, you are going to miss the point. You're going to miss the way the story applies to your life. You're going to miss at least half of it. Every one of us has to learn from both of the brothers if we want to become like the father. So let's ask first, what does the younger brother teach us? Like the younger brother, we must recognize we are all sinners. We have messed up many times. You know, when, when, the, son, when, the, when the younger son here asks for his inheritance, he's saying to God, God, I wish you were dead. Every time we sin in thought, word, or deed, and you know how comprehensive the law of God is and how it applies to every, every thought, word, or deed, Every time we sin, it is as if we are wishing God were dead. We're saying, God, I hate you. God, I wish you were dead. Every sin is an attempted deicide, an attempt to put God to death. Now, in the story, the younger brother's sin is very overt. It's open. His rebellious is obvious. It's inexcusable, of course, but it's also just out there for everybody to see. It may be that you're better at sin management than the younger brother. You may uh, do better at managing your sin and keeping your your sin hidden, but you are still a sinner. You have abused the Father's gifts and grace. And so what are you to do? Well, one mistake we should never make is thinking that we've somehow got to get our act together uh, to come to God. God welcomes prodigals back home, even if they're going to track mud into his house. We're all prodigals, and we all need to know there's no way we can clean up our act before we come home. And you know, we simply can't do this. We go straight from the pigsty to the father's home. Straight from the pigsty to the father's house. And we do this not just once, but we do this again and again and again. Because we sin again and again and again. We have to return to the father. Every time you sin, you've jumped into the pigsty. And so we have to come back to the Father's house again and again and again. So often we try to hide our sin to make ourselves look respectable, really to make make ourselves look better than we are. Think about your life as a house for just a minute. You know, in your house, where you live, uh, you probably probably do your best uh, to keep your living areas relatively clean and respectable looking, knowing that you might have guests pop in from time to time, so you want to keep things tidy enough so it looks decent. And so those places in your house where guests might go, you keep them pretty clean, places like the living room or, or, or the bathroom. You, know, you want to clean up your, your image. You want to make things look good, and so you keep your house relatively clean uh, in those places where guests might go. But in every house, there is a place, it may be a storage closet, it may be the garage, a lot of times it's the basement, a place where all the junk goes, all the stuff you don't want your guests to see, all that stuff you, know, you can't find a place for, you don't know what to do with it, you probably wish you didn't even have it anymore, uh, and you, you just shove it in there, you just throw it in there, you, know, you throw it down the basement. And you try to keep that door to the basement 
locked. You know, you might open it just enough to throw some other piece of junk down there. You know, you're kind of throwing your sin down into the, to the basement where you hope nobody will see it, and then you slam that door shut and lock it again. But here's the thing. When Jesus comes to visit, he goes in all the rooms of your house, including the basement. Jesus is not afraid of your basement. Indeed, he wants to go down into your basement where, you clean, where you've got all that junk that you're ashamed of, all that stuff you're hoping to keep hidden from everybody else. I mean, we've all got secrets. We hope nobody ever finds out about us. And Jesus says, no, I'm going in there too. We need to admit that. We need to open that door, and we need to let Jesus get to work cleaning it up. We can't be ashamed. We can't keep it hidden. We've got to bring it out. We've got to let Jesus into the nooks and crannies, into the basement of our lives to cleanse us. Don't pretend like it's not there. We all have things we're deeply ashamed of. Secrets we'd do anything to keep hidden. But Jesus says, no, I'm going in. and I'm going in not to make you feel more ashamed, but to clean it all up, to clean up the mess. I mean, wouldn't you love to have somebody come clean out your basement or your garage for you? Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do in your life. This is how Martin Luther puts it. He says, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. What qualifies you for Jesus? Being blind? Being deaf? It's being dead? What qualifies you for saintliness? It's being a sinner? He gives grace to none but the wretched. That's his promise. Flannery O'Connor. We got any Flannery O'Connor fans here? Okay, yes, yes, very good. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, you know, I love her, her fiction, but she wrote a lot of really interesting nonfiction stuff too. She says this, the operation of the church is entirely set up for the sinner, which creates great misunderstanding among the smug. Or to translate it into the language of this parable, the operation of the church is entirely set up for younger brothers, for prodigal sons, which is why it creates such great misunderstanding amongst older brothers. This is why the Pharisees did not understand the ministry of Jesus in, in their day. They were smug, and so they just didn't get it. They didn't understand that his ministry, his whole ministry, was geared towards sinners. Understand that the whole ministry of the church is geared towards forgiving sinners, washing sinners, assuring sinners, instructing sinners. What does Flannery O'Connor mean by the ministry of the church? I'll tell you what I would mean by it. Baptism, the Word, and the Supper. And baptism, the Word, and the Supper are all for sinners. Baptism is for sinners. The whole point of baptism is to get cleansed. Well, cleansing presupposes dirt. You wouldn't need to get washed if you weren't dirty. Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, in baptism we are clothed with Christ Jesus, just as the prodigal son was clothed with the robe and with the ring and with sandals. Baptism is for sinners. Baptism is for the naked. Baptism is for the dirty. Baptism is for those who need to be cleansed and clothed. And in baptism, we get the best clothing of all. We get the best washing of all. We are clothed with Christ and washed in his blood. That's what baptism is all about. It's for sinners. 
The Word is for sinners too. Think about what happens every Sunday in your liturgy. You confess your sins, and then a word of absolution is pronounced, a promise of forgiveness. The Word is spoken to sinners to bring comfort and renewal. The Word is given to us to comfort us. The Father speaking words of tenderness and love to you to assure you of his love and his acceptance and his forgiveness. And it's the same with communion, with the Eucharist. The Eucharist is for sinners too. Communion is for sinners. It is the Father's weekly party for prodigals. That's what the Lord's Supper is. The Father's weekly party for prodigals who are returning home. Now, we don't feast on the fattened calf. We have a much better meal. We feast on the sacrificial son, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. The tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners come to the table to eat with Jesus and to feast upon Jesus. And so we sing and make music and do the dance of the liturgy every Sunday because the Father is inviting us home to feast with him, to leave the pigsty behind and to come and take our seat at his table. Every Sunday, sinners get to join in the Father's party. Every Sunday, we make merry with him. We join the party with, that's going on in heaven with the angels. Don't ever say, I'm not worthy. So therefore, I can't come. It's not about your worthiness. It never has been and never will be. It is all about the love of the Father and the grace of the Father and the welcome of the Father shown to us in Jesus Christ. Remember, there are no good deeds that are going to save you and there are no sins that will damn you if you will only trust in Christ Jesus. Jesus can handle all your failures. Jesus is a big enough Savior to handle all your failures, no matter what you've done. And even if for you, you know, the Christian life kind of seems like it's three steps forward, two steps back, or maybe even seems like two steps forward, three steps back, you've got to remember Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is full of mercy. It is always his property to have mercy as the beautiful words of Thomas Cramer in the Book of Common Prayer put it, always his property to have mercy. He's going to keep on pursuing you and running after you and welcoming you back. I say to my congregation regularly, I tell them all the time, Jesus died for Christians too. Because sometimes we get the impression that we can talk about the death of Jesus with non-Christians as we're evangelizing them. But then once you become a Christian, it's kind of like you're on your own. And what do you do with your sins as a Christian? What do you do with the fact that you're still very much a failure, still very much a prodigal? The gospel is for Christians too. So what is the lesson of the prodigal son? It's very simple. God forgives. God accepts you as you are. God loves you and welcomes you. God meets you right where you are. Don't go offer to be God's slave, God's hired hand. Instead, accept the identity God has given to you. Accept your identity as a son with all the rights and privileges and security that come with sonship. Recognize, too, you've got to repent. You know, this crazy grace of the Father is shown to you. When you come to your senses, as the prodigal did, and you turn from the pigsty to leave it behind, you turn towards the Father's house, so maybe we should reframe the lesson of the prodigal brother this way. God accepts us as we are. 
but he doesn't let us stay that way. God accepts us as we are, but he begins washing and transforming us. What about the older brother? What lessons can the older brother teach us? I refer to him as the Presbyterian brother. And there's a reason for that. The Greek word for elder or for older, to to describe this elder brother, uh, this elder son, uh, it is the word presbyteros, from which we get elder. uh, is how it's usually translated, but it's also the, uh, the root of our English term Presbyterian. He is the Presbyterian brother which I find more than just a little bit ironic. Uh, I don't know the denominational affiliation of the younger son, uh, but I do know that the older son was definitely Presbyterian. (laughs) And I can say that I am a Presbyterian. I'm in the Presbyterian tradition. And uh, I, I do think there's more than a bit of irony here. We need to recognize the sad fact that Presbyterian and Reformed churches are often known for repelling just the kinds of sinners that Jesus attracted. I would say our kinds of churches are known for having more than their fair share of elder brotherishness. And we should ask, why is that the case? We should evaluate ourselves, evaluate whether or not we have too much of an elder brother ethos in our communities. Are our churches places where grace is freely proclaimed and lived? Or do people who come in constantly feel like they have to measure up, and if they don't have it all together, they've at least got to put on a facade when they come to church to keep others fooled? Or do they just go somewhere else looking for a place where they can find that welcome they so desperately crave? People won't believe unless they also sense they can belong. Believing and belonging always go together. Older brothers, this is the thing, older brothers are not so much scandalized by sin. That's kind of the way they like to put it sometimes to make themselves seem righteous. But older brothers are not so much scandalized by sin as they are scandalized by grace. They're scandalized by grace shown to sinners. Older brothers operate in a framework in which it is possible to out-sin the grace of God in which there are certain sins that just can't be covered by grace. And so older brother types think that God is sometimes saving all the wrong people. Older brothers want the church to have an admissions committee. Uh, Do any of you know the name William Willimon? Uh, He used to live right in this area. Yeah, he was, uh, for years, he was the chaplain at Duke. And uh, he's written a lot of great books through the years, some not so great, but uh, he's, he's actually very, very insightful at times. But he, he, was, he was the chaplain at Duke for years and years, and then he actually moved to my city, to Birmingham, where he became the, uh, the bishop in the Methodist church there. And I went to hear him speak a few times. Uh, I think he's largely retired now, but I went to hear him speak, and I, I remember one of the talks that I uh, heard him give. Uh, he said that it was interesting, after being back in church life, you know, having left the academic life at Duke and, and coming to work in the church again, somebody asked him, they said, what do you miss most about Duke? And you might think he would have said, oh, the basketball or something like that. <laughs> That's not what he said. He said, what I miss most about Duke is the admissions committee. He said, when I was at Duke, I never had to talk to anybody who got less than a 34 on the ACT. Now that I am back in the church, I have to deal with anything, with with anyone, who God drags in. I've got to deal with anyone Jesus drags into his church. And let me tell you, most of them are below average. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, that's what older brotherism looks like. It's wishing the church had an admissions committee so we could screen out the people we don't like, but we don't get to do that. What the older brother overlooks is his own need of grace. Alexander Schmemann puts it this way. He says, a man who has never felt that he is exiled from God will never understand what the gospel is all about. If you never experienced your own exile from God, your own sense of being a sinner and, and, and knowing how your sin alienates you from God, if you've never recognized that, that only God's grace, only the sheer mercy of God can restore you, that even sons who have never left home, so to speak, only live by grace, then you really don't understand what the gospel is all about. You have to recognize everything you have is a gift. The Father says, all that is mine is yours. All I have is yours. But what does the older brother say? He says with a sense of entitlement and accusation. He says, you never gave me a goat even that I might, might, might make merry with my friends. He does not see the extravagant grace of the Father in his life. He takes his own right standing for granted. See, the father is extravagant in his grace to both sons. But all the older brother does is complain. He misses the gifts he's been given. He doesn't think of them as gifts. He thinks of them as entitlements. And indeed, he has the mentality of a slave. He relates to his father not as a son, but as a slave master, as, as a slave would to his master. He may appear to be obedient, but he's actually not. It's not from the heart anyway. He lives in his father's house. He's grown up in the father's house. He's never left the father's house. But he lives as a hired hand, not a son. And I would say precisely in our circles, precisely because we so stress covenant succession and pedo-faith, pedo-baptism, pedo-communion, all these things, this is a real problem for us. While we train our kids how to live as Christians, we must remind them continually that everything is of grace. They're only included in the father's family, and at the Father's table because of grace. And no, they may never leave home. That's certainly our hope for them. But we do want them to know that they live in the Father's house by grace. Note, too, that the, uh, that the, the older brother here, he's alienated from his father, but he's also alienated from his brother. A bad relationship with his father corrupts his relationship with his brother. Alienation from the father leads to alienation with his brother, which means, and this, this is so important to understand, what this means is to get right with his brother, he has to get right with his father. Think about the relationships in your life, you know, on a horizontal level. And, and you certainly, virtually all of us, I'm sure, have various relationships in our lives that are broken, that are ruptured, that are at least strained and tense. Understand, your problem is not really with that other person. The problem is really in your vertical relationship with God. And when you get your relationship right with God, your relationship with others around you will fall into place. We always think the problem is the other person. The problem is this, you know, I'm fine with God. It's this, it's this horizontal relationship that, 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 is, that is the problem, not my vertical relationship with God. But no, this story shows us. If there's a problem here, it's because there's a problem here. And if you solve the problem of your relationship with God, so you rightly relate with God, you're going to start re re relating rightly with everyone else around you. And those broken relationships will begin to be healed. 
When the prodigal comes home, his older brother does not describe him as my brother. He says, this son of yours. He has disowned his brother. The grace of the father offends him. He doesn't see himself as having received grace. He won't acknowledge the grace he has been given. And so he won't extend grace to others. Again, Flannery O'Connor would say it's because he's smug. Because he's smug, he doesn't understand what Jesus' ministry is all about. And that's the real tragedy. He thinks he's righteous, and he's certainly got high moral standards in one sense. He thinks he's a good son, but he's actually not righteous. He's self-righteous, which makes him unrighteous, which then actually puts him in the same category as his wayward brother. And that's what he has to see. He's not righteous, he's self-righteous, and that makes him unrighteous. In a word, the elder brother, that is the Presbyterian brother, is a Pharisee. Now we have to recognize all of us have these older brother tendencies, these Pharisaical tendencies. A tendency to hate, a tendency to look down on others, a tendency to be judgmental in all the wrong ways for all the wrong reasons. We tend to be hypocritical, passing ourselves off as better than we really are, or this is one that that, that I think really hits home, we tend to be harder on other people's sins than we are on our own. We excuse our own sins while we condemn the sins of others. Ted Tripp puts the question this way. He says, if you acknowledge that the grace of God is your only hope and then throw condemnation on those in the church who struggle, you are a hypocrite. You are contradicting yourself. Your doctrine and your practice do not match. You have to guard against your inner Pharisee. You cannot let your inner Pharisee, there's one inside of every one of us, you cannot let your inner Pharisee come out and play because he wreaks all this havoc in your relationship with God and with others. Or the way another pastor put it, he said, you know, we really like having Psalm 51 in our Bibles. We just don't want sinners who actually need it in our congregations. We want to guard ourselves against that kind of thing. And we give reasons for that. Oh, we don't want such people to influence us or to, uh, or, or, or to corrupt this pure community we're creating here. Or what would it do to our reputation if somebody like that came here? Or how would they ever fit in? Those kind of things are our problem. They're our older brotherishness. There are pharisaical tendencies coming out. Again, Pharisees are scandalized by grace that welcomes sinners to come as they are. Pharisees look for excuses to not love people. Pharisees see hatred of all the right people as the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said love for your neighbor is fulfillment of the law. For the Pharisees, it's hatred of the right people that is the fulfillment of the law. Pharisees look for excuses to not love people, and those excuses are always easy to find. Miroslav Volf says we use the sins committed against us to justify our sins committed against others. We must not do that. When you go to confess your sin as you must, you must confess as if you were the only one at fault. Otherwise, you are still making excuses for what you've done. The Pharisees condemned others as a way of justifying themselves, and we can do the same thing. Condemn others as a way of making ourselves feel more righteous. Condemning others as a way of propping ourselves up. Pharisees are holier than thou. That's actually a phrase that comes from Isaiah 66. And if you go look at it in its context there, You can see that holier-than-thou posture is demonic. It comes from the pit of hell. The father says to older brother types, come and join the party. 
Come and join Jesus in rolling out the red carpet for sinners to give them an extravagant and joyful welcome. Join in demonstrating the extravagant and astonishing grace of God. Join in befriending prodigals. If God is willing to befriend prodigals, you must do the same. You can't have higher standards for fellowship than God himself has. All that the Father has is yours. Rejoice in the grace and mercy lavished on you. Make your life, and indeed make your dinner table, a reflection of the welcoming grace of the gospel. Go seek out the lost and bring them home. There's a story that Ed Clowney tells. This, I actually came across this in, in Tim Keller's book uh, on, uh, on this um, parable in Luke 15. Uh, but Ed Clowney, who was a, uh, he was a teacher at uh, Westminster Seminary for years and years, actually came into the South Texas Presbytery right towards the end of my time there uh, to work with a church there. Um, did a lot of good work through the years. But he, he tells the story. It's, it's, it's supposed to be a true story. I trust that it is. True story of a young man uh, he, was a, he was a soldier in the, in, the, um, in the U.S. Army who went missing in action during the Vietnam War. And when the family could not get any word of where their, their, their boy was through any of the official channels, this soldier's older brother flew to Vietnam. And he risked his life searching the jungles and the battlefields of Vietnam for his lost brother. And it said that despite the danger, he was never hurt because those on both sides heard of his dedication to find his brother and they respected his quest. And he became known simply as the brother. This is what a true older brother does. He leaves home and he sacrifices himself and, and at his own expense, he goes out on a search for the missing brother. He goes searching for the prodigal. What is the lesson of the Presbyterian brother, the elder brother? It's simply this. The rule of the kingdom is always this. If you want to be forgiven, you must forgive. If you want to receive grace, you must be willing to be an agent of grace. If you want to be judged with mercy, you must judge others mercifully. If you want a place at God's dinner table, you must make room at your table for sinners and prodigals and outcasts. You must recognize you are a son of God only by grace. And you can't have higher standards for fellowship than God himself does. You're not holier than God. And so if God is willing to welcome sinners, who are you to reject them? You are not earning God's grace by doing these things, by forgiving, by serving. You're showing that you know what it's like to need grace. You are recognizing your utter dependence upon the grace of God to save you. What I hope to do in the last talk is get into some more practical ways to do this. But I hope you're seeing the beauty of the gospel in this story, the parable of the prodigal son, for all of us. Let's pray together and we'll take our break. God, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God. We thank you that you forgive the unrighteousness of the younger brothers and the self-righteousness of the older brothers, that all of us can be made whole and healthy in Christ Jesus. Our lawlessness and our legalism can both be forgiven in him. Uh, Father, help us to learn the lessons of the, uh, of the two brothers and especially the lesson of the father. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.